Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 109. The big question is, do you know your number? Do you know how much money you need to sell your business for? Do you know how much money you need for life? Is there a gap between if you were to sell your company now, liquidate, could you maintain your lifestyle? I think that's a question that all of us entrepreneurs are constantly thinking about, whether it's on the top of our mind or if it's a huge stomach ache or a sense of anxiety, knowing that we don't necessarily know what those numbers are or what our exit options are and how all of our decisions are impacting that. And finding the answer to these questions is why I'm super excited to have a long-term, really good friend of mine for the last eight years on the show, who's also a partner at GEXP Collaborative Arts. He's been a ridiculous mentor that I've looked up to because of all the different things that he does in his life, how he makes decisions, and how he complements a lot of the different things that we do as a team. His financial background is amazing. He owns a company called Solidity Financial, but decided to become a partner at GXP with myself and Jim because his knowledge on the financial structure of how much your company is worth, how much you need, how much you need for life is so important, and his value that he brings is so important, and he is on the show to finally lay it all out. What do you need from your business? What are the numbers that you need to hit for lifetime cash flow for the net proceeds of your business? And where do those variables bring you into the future of all your options and how you make decisions? I hope this podcast sheds a little bit of relief onto you understanding what you need to look at, what numbers matter, so you can start doing some digging, so you can actually get some clarity on what's important and why. So without further ado, here's my podcast episode with Brandon. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. What's up, Brandon? How you doing? I'm doing well, Ryan. So long time coming that we finally got you on the show. You've been watching all of this for many years. And so you and I have known each other for eight some years now. And um, for the listeners that don't know all of our background or who you are, where uh, you do or where you came from, why don't you just go back uh, to the day that you jumped into finance and, beca- and got your, uh, your drinking through the fire hose experience. Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. But basically, you know, even in high school, I knew that I was a numbers guy and that solving problems with numbers was a passion that I had. So I really took that to, to heart with my studies, got a degree in financial management from St. Thomas in town here. And my first job out of college was with Cargill Treasury Operations. And so, you know, clearly a much bigger scale than, than most people are used to as, as being, you know, still the largest privately held company in the world, I believe. But this is back in the late 90s and in, you know, 2000 when the market was going up and, and people really couldn't do any wrong by investing in, in really risk was just kind of a, a figment of everybody's imagination really at that point because nobody was really encountering it. Well, when I started with Cargill, they had a catastrophe. It was a foreign currency catastrophe. And it cost the company a significant amount of money. It was uh, in the many millions of dollars. And that, that was the start of a wave uh, for Cargill specifically of trying to get your head around of risk and risk management. And so my experience 
in the in the financial management industry was revolving around helping this incredibly large company get a grip on the risk and exposure that their individual traders were taking on on a daily basis. So, and, and, you know, I was going to say, so you, you, I think from the stories that you've told me, it was literally managed on a spreadsheet and these people were all, like so exposed into specific currencies or specific things. So they just thought immediately that their returns were going to happen. So they didn't even have any kind of concern that they weren't going to get their money back. Well, they're, so what Cargill was doing is, is they were just letting people really wildcats. So they had all kinds of different traders who were trading in everything from currencies to commodities. They had people who were working with distressed real estate and really everything was to the upside. Everybody was making money and it was the, the running joke was, is who was, you know, who was really blowing the cover off the ball that day. And so it was, there was never a real serious conversation around what's our exposure here. And so when this huge loss took place, they had to start cutting staff and the trading floor started to shrink. And there were, you know, the spreadsheet really was developed as this panic was happening. And that is, is let's get this thing on paper here and find out, you know, what we're really looking at. And so, you know, you know, I, I don't know what Cargill's compliance department looks like today, but my understanding is that it's, that it's enormous. And, and really, I was on the front end of that. I was the only person at Cargill, <laughs> the entire company, who was trying to uh, govern these traders. And they really didn't appreciate my effort very much at lots, all. Lots of FUs and phone hangups. <laughs> there was, there was. And it was, uh, it was really setting up just guardrails and saying, okay, this is where you've been operating at. Uh, you've been successful with, with this level of exposure here are some parameters that we're just going to keep our eye out for. So if you blow over it, if, y'all, if all of a sudden you're double, triple, quadruple your past exposure, which we're arbitrarily comfortable with, let somebody know. And so that was, that was the first step that they had taken towards, towards uh, controlling risk. So basically what happened then is, is I really had a passion for, you know, for finances and being in the, uh, on the investment side. And because of that catastrophe, the career path for people jumping onto the trading floor and becoming one of those guys that I was, that I was kind of watching over was much more extended than I wanted it to be. So I made a strategic decision to take everything that I had learned there in a couple of years and bring it out to the, out to the world of the individual investor, the business owners and say, how can I apply what I've learned from a risk uh, mitigation standpoint? And how can I apply that to the individual finance world? Well, and what I found, and when you and I crossed paths, it was when my dad and I were going through our the preliminary due diligence and kind of going through like what the heck is going on with our business, what's it worth, what do we need, all that stuff. And we were in the morning crew at the gym, and that you were the sole confidant that I had because I wasn't able to talk about it with my friends, with my family, with my coworkers, with anybody. And the maybe give, you know, your observations, because as we kind of intersected, we smashed a bunch of different worlds together on what is it that the business, what, what are your observations with business owners, with the, the wealth that they create, with the business and what it's worth and what the situation that you saw that we were dealing with, along with all the other customers that you'd worked with and how that correlates to, to risk? Well, you know, it's a great question because you, you know, you have the, the small to mid-sized business owners typically uh, the lion's share of their, of their net worth is wrapped up into the business. And to them, their perception of risk 
is that, you know, in general, and some people, you know, they see industry risk and they, and, and maybe they're a little bit more sensitive, but in general, people, you know, entrepreneurs are pretty confident in their ability to, to keep the ship, uh, you know, on the right path. And so they might have a uh, kind of a reduced sense of what that risk is. And, you know, it's just kind of going to piggyback on our conversation that we're going to be having here is that along with them not fully appreciating how much risk they have, there are so many moving parts on determining what their risk adjusted return is, what they're pulling out of their business, all the different benefits that they're getting from a cash flow perspective to to cash flow their current lifestyle and then how does that apply to what their what their exit strategy is or how are they going to get out of this of this uh, monster that they've developed that is providing a, a certain standard of living i see that as being one of the primary issues is is people not being able to reconcile what it means to not all of a sudden have that machine and then really going back out into the retirement world where you're just like anybody else who basically uh, retired with a 401k at that point. You have, a, you have a chunk of money and now what? Well, and I think it's so interesting too because you and I have uh, had many conversations along with a lot of the entrepreneurs and the friends that I have where, you know, it, it is risk, but like, and I think, you know, what, what's so interesting, it's manageable risk in, my, in uh, my perception of what we dealt with and a lot of these entrepreneurs because it's, networks, you know, customers and vendors and situations that you have perceived control over. And what happens is, so yeah, you've got this whole world that you know, and what it does is it kicks off a shitload of cash. And so you've got your salary, then you've got your write-offs, then you've got distributions. And what happens is you start rewarding yourself for the things that you've done, but there's not, there's this big gaping black hole, which, you know, my dad and I realize, and a lot of our clients realize that what the hell is this thing worth if I were to sell it? Because, you know, we weren't saving money <laughs> at all. We were using it for, for loans and for, you know, a rainy day when we actually needed payroll. And I think there's this whole big gaping black hole of, okay, what do I got here? And what is it actually, like, how do I get out of it if I have to? So what is your experience? Like how, you know, what are some of the variables? And I don't know if you got some examples on some of the things that people need to start to really start to dive into and peel apart. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of put a bow on the, the, the prior point there is that you have this, you have this business risk that you're facing and because business is risky and because ownership is risky, the reward for state for being in that business and operating the business and can, and, and continuing to maintain that risk is significant. And so what you're doing is, is you're trying to shift from this, from this, high return environment, which has all the benefits that you described, right? To a much more stable environment where we've de-risked from the single small company um, interest to, to probably out to, you know, more larger companies and market interest and other types of investing that's going to mitigate risk, risk, but also is going to provide a much lower return on investment or spinoff of whatever capital that you had invested there. So, um, well, and, and even before we go on, go on to the, the example and is I was actually, I've had multiple conversations because there's a lot of chatter right now going, we've been in the longest bull run ever. When's the economy going to crash? And you know, a lot of these entrepreneurs that are baby boomers, like, do you want to go through another recession? Which is kind of scary. And, but so there's the recession thing, but then there's all these like industry things where I was talking to this uh, guy today, um, where they, they did training. He was actually on the podcast, uh, um, Scott, 
was talking about how this training institute that he ended up selling eventually got sold to ITT Tech and Obama signed a legislation that literally shut down a multiple hundred million dollar company in one signature. <laughs> so oh, this, yeah. these privately held, this privately held business that had been, you know, that, I mean, that is the ultimate risk, but it, I mean, you, you wouldn't see this, you wouldn't see that coming or even like the, what's the new legislation they got passive that there's no longer going to be plastic straws. What, what about the straw manufacturers? I'm sure there's lots of privately held businesses that are, that are riding that coattail right now. Oh, you have disruption that's happening all across the board, right? There could be regulatory disruption. There could be, um, you know, any, any of, of, you know, all kinds of different technologies that are putting companies out of business. And so there's, there, there is a lot of risk, but like we were saying, the, the reward is there. So yeah, so let's, let's just jump into a quick example and kind of just take a look at how you begin to take a kind of a basic reconciliation of what uh, we refer to at, at our company as, as a value gap, right? And I don't know, do you want to define value gap, Brian, or would you like me to do it? Well, I'll give my two cents and then you can expand on it with your, your background. So the, the value gap is what I've realized that a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs or even we experience when you say, okay, so if I'm making X amount of money per year, right? So like, let's say, what's that? Yeah. My lifestyle or that. So if it, let's, let's say, let's say someone's making 250 grand a year through salaries and real estate or distributions or whatever, and you're paying a bunch of stuff and that's what how much you need 20 grand a month to live. Well, you, you know, you need, if you were to liquidate everything, what does your balance sheet sheet need to look like today to passively keep that? Not so you're not having to exert your sweat equity into something. So if there's a gap between liquidation of everything and you maintaining your income, that's what I consider you got yourself a gap between you and your target. And I know you've probably got a, a, a couple examples, but maybe a little bit more technical way to describe it. Yeah. So we'll just kind of run through a, you know, a very typical example that we like to use, right? So let's just say that we have a company that has you know, $10 million in revenue, right? And we've got a couple so two partners, 50% owners in the business, and each one of them has saved up a half a million dollars in their, whatever their company retirement plan might be, each making $150,000 a year. And then maybe with some benefits and uh, some fringe benefits and distributions, maybe they're living a $350,000 a year lifestyle. So really the business is, you know, to replace that overnight, we're looking at getting them a $350,000 income so that they're not needing to make major expense adjustments when they pull the trigger on whatever type of a deal structure for an exit or succession that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So company's got $10 million in revenue. Let's just say hypothetically that they could get, you know, uh, or that they have EBITDA of 10%, right? Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that figure? Well, and I think, you know, uh, you know, for the listeners, I know, I know we talk about EBITDA a lot, but just call it net operating profits or some of the, the, the free cash flow. And I think 10%, I mean, yeah, typical, like, let's just say, you know, on an average up and down the street, business is 10% after all, right. all that. And then maybe assume like a 4X uh, valuation on something like this, just for our example. Yeah, I think, you know, like, and I, you know, this is, we've had multiple other podcasts about this, but I think, you know, how you value a company and whether it's a three times return because again an investor wants a certain rate of return or a certain amount of years that they pay back yep. three on the lower end is because they have a lot of crappy operating procedures or they've not done a lot of things and then you get up into the higher valuations if they're they're locked tight but um let's say let's say they're run like a normal lifestyle business four times yep yep fair enough so so we have you know 10 million dollar uh in in gross they were kicking off um you know one million dollars in ebitda 
and we get a 4X valuation, we're looking at a sale price of, of $4 million, right? So $4 million, fantastic. Seems like a big number. And then we start to drill down a little bit further. Well, we have to pay taxes. We might have debt, outstanding debt. And then of course, we've got two partners. We got to split that up. So to walk away with uh, all said and done, especially if it's not planned out right, I mean, you can really take a hit on those numbers. So let's just say that you, you, you walk away with 750 Maybe you know, maybe up to a million dollars a piece. Right. Well, let's, let's, and I think it, you know, for the listeners, because we've paid the tax, man. My, trust me, you see my dad's face or any of these owners that we've worked with. Yeah. You know, the asset sale that a business owner typically does in the main street, because if you're working top level, two million and EBITDA and above, you might be able to do a stock sale at capital gains. But asset sales, they're they're ordinary income if you get the lump sum. I mean, you hit the highest tax bracket immediately with no tax planning and then you pay it on debt. I mean, it's easily, you can get to that 800, seven, seven, 800 to a million dollars with, I mean, it's half. <laughs> I know it, it, and it is, and it's so common, isn't it? So, okay. So let's just use that. Let's just use a million for round figures though, because it's going it, to, it's not going to make a huge difference whether we got 800 or a thousand walking away because we really only have $500,000 a piece saved beyond that. So just for real round figures, let's just say we have a million and a half. We're walking away with a million and a half to show for what we've been doing for as long as we've been in business as an owner, right? So mm-hmm. let's just say we're 60 years old, not looking to necessarily start something back up. We're When we pull the trigger here on whatever the plan is, and again, how all these numbers shake out are going to help us define what options we have. Sometimes we run this analysis and there is no option other than to continue to operate the business because the value gap is so high that we need to stay in that business and grow it uh, in order for us to come to a place where the, the owner's in a position to be able to do this. So, so we had a couple owners who were living $350,000 a year lifestyle. And for the sake of you know real simplicity, let's just assume that they don't have any other sources of income. They haven't diversified into any type of real estate holdings, which you know, which is something that you do see. And you know, obviously, social security is a source of income, but that's that doesn't move the needle on a three hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> lifestyle, right? So we're walking away with one point five million dollars. And if we're just using a real shoot from the hip um, spin off of cash flow, we could say you know we can pretty conservatively get somebody a five percent. Um, distribution off of that that's sustainable. So you're looking at you know seventy five thousand dollars a year in income, just kind of on a you know on a real uh, top level basis here, uh, seventy five thousand dollars a year. And so the real awakening is when you start to run through the personal financials that are is is that these business owners they really have no idea what that number means and how they're going to bridge that gap. They just know that they're kind of stuck in a business at that point. Yeah, and it's paralyzing. And I and I don't and I think it, what's even probably more paralyzing for most is they don't even know those baseline foundation numbers. And can you dive into, you know, can you dive in a little bit more into like this cash flow piece? Because I think there's a lot of people that probably don't know the the underlying assumptions behind there. So because I think people go, oh yeah, you know, because I, you know, I hear it all the time. And I, honestly, we used to do it is, so we make, you know, okay, we got $1.5 million. You literally just take, you know, 1.5 divided by 350. And then you look at your expense, you all figure it out for five years <laughs> or something. But like, where's the, where's the 5% coming from? And what are the assumptions that you're making, you know, with those two different, the 1.5 and the 5%? Absolutely. So there's, we have, 
we have a number of different variables that we're solving for, right? So as I alluded to earlier, whatever the big picture is for the resources that an individual has saved up for themselves. So, you know, some of them have passive income, they have, you know, various real estate, all, all of these different things are going to come into play. And as soon as we boil it down, we find out exactly where the potential for ongoing income is for the client. We now start solving backwards and we say, okay, uh, we need $350,000 a year. This is an extreme example here. So we need $350,000 to finance our current lifestyle. $1.5 What type of risk do we need to take with a $1.5 million base to produce the most income? So ideally, when a client comes to us, we have a, you know, the value gap of smaller non-existence. And then what our philosophy tends to be, and it, again, it comes down to the individuals and their appetite for risk, but we generally solve backwards and we say, what's the least amount of risk that we can take on for this individual in order to achieve the cash flow needs that they have, right? Mm -hmm. And so to go to your question specifically on the 5%, you know, we start from what is the risk-free rate of return and what's, how much can we get risk-free for an individual right now on a risk-free basis, you know, we're looking closer to, you know, maybe 2% call it. So <laughs> yeah. 2%, we're talking about, you know, $30,000 a year income for this individual on a risk-free basis, not going to happen. Uh, so generally, you know, everyone uses kind of a different rule of thumb, but the more, the further we get up from 2% is just purely a measurement of the risk that we're going to take. And, you know, the market does a long-term average, you know, on an inflation-adjusted basis of right around 7%. And that's fully invested in the stock market. And what really makes me nervous is when I see people modeling, you know, 10% distribution rates off of their money when the market doesn't produce 10% all in, right? And so all we're really looking for to, to come to that number is, is if we diversify a portfolio and we're managing for risk, uh, for any given level of risk, what is our comfortable distribution rate off of that in, off of that nest egg in order to provide a sustainable income for the individual? So we like to benchmark just kind of right around four to five percent, and it's just really a starting point. But if we if the client needs a lot more uh, income than the situation is going to provide for, uh, then we need to slide up the scale a little bit, and that could well, go five percent. And I think and I think your point of this is like this person in this example can't sell their company. <laughs> I mean that that's. Really, the yeah. the reality of it, right? And so, um, look, because I think we can talk. I think this will be kind of fun as we can talk about all the different ways to bridge that gap. But for the listeners, you know, on rough guesstimates, what would this person need in actual in actual proceeds? Other than that million bucks, what would they actually need? So that right now they got one point five. What would they need in order to passively kick out that three fifty? Yeah, unfortunately, where I would like to see this individual, I would like to see this individual walk away with nine million dollars to produce that to produce that three hundred and fifty thousand. And well, and here let's let's take this even like and let's reverse back up for the listeners because here's where the, here's where this gets really crazy because okay, so if we if if they need to walk away with nine million bucks, so you're saying they need ten and a half million bucks for that three fifty. They need they need to have. They need to have nine million dollars after tax. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're nine and a half million bucks. Yep. Yeah. So, so essentially, now think about if you paid 40 percent in taxes in your debt. So you, if you gross that back up, think about how much the company needs to be worth. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. It is. It is. So there's a serious reconciliation that needs to happen. And so 
So then let's say, Brandon, that like, okay, right, you, you know, let's say I'm the owner, I'm looking, okay, okay, that's, there's no way. Yeah, there's things that I could do. Maybe I could get it up to six, seven million dollars or something like that. I, you know, I've got a little bit of energy left. I got some kind of, you know, stride to do this, but there's just no reality to that. You know, let's, let's maybe talk about, and then we can get into the deal structures and the exit options. But even before we get into the deal structures and the exit options, let's talk about like, you know, how different variables in people's lives can mitigate or diminish how much they need. Like, okay, so let's say you're bringing in cash flow from your building from real estate or other things, you know, kind of give us some random examples of how you could, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Where like you're kind of dwindling down how much you actually need from the actual business versus, you know, other, other different areas. Right. And yeah, I was just talking with a client here this week and we manage, he, he sold businesses in the past. He's, he's building another one, but sold business in the past. And he's of the mindset that he's going to build the business and he doesn't know exactly where it's, he's going to go with that value. It's very much cloudy, like, like it is for a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners, but he's actively looking for diversifying out of his business along the way. And so to take those steps, to be able to take those steps early is huge. So he's in his mid forties and he's looking to work another 10 years or so. But on the way here, he's making some investments in real estate and some other things that might spin off, you know, some, you know, some private equity type investments that might spin off a of cash in the meantime, that can, that can be part of that pie and that formula when we start to solve for, uh, for what the exit options are. Right. So it's how do we start to structure in income options and, there's a lot of different things that, that, that go into play. And well, I, think, I think, you know, perfect example of that is like, so just for, for some basic numbers for everybody is, okay, so if you're making five grand a month off of net, off of rent or something like that from the building that, you're, that you purchase or something like that, first of all, you get a lot of tax advantages with the building, but, you know, five grand a month is six, well, 60 grand. If you reverse that back up, that's what, $1.2 million that you would need that's less off of that 9 million bucks, right? Yep, for sure. And then, you know, so any source of income obviously is going to help. But as I'm kind of thinking about this example here out loud, is that the biggest key is, is that you have this $350,000 a year that you're spinning off. The sooner you get ahead of this snowball and you can start to uh, start to plan for that income stream, you know, we assume here that they only had $500,000 saved up. Right. If we can get a head start on that, we can actually start putting money away. That can be a big. That can be a huge part of the, of the uh, of the formula here. But well, and can you maybe describe? You know, when we talk about knowing your numbers and how that impacts your timing, your exit options, and deal structure. You know, like so, what are the things to consider when you're looking at your exit and in your timing and like how and when you get your money? How does it? How does this all? How do these variables all impact that? Well, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking there, but what I think you're asking is, is what, what are the variables that are going to allow us to have the most amount of flexibility? In right, the, the most amount of options, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, the most amount of options. Yeah, so really it is propping up this, this big picture and that is, is controlling the expenses, uh, you know, whatever, whatever we can do from the, from the personal financial perspective to allow us to shrink that value gap down because as you're well aware, the less we need to demand out of that upfront cash and what we take and what we pull out of that business kind of in that, in that initial transaction, and the more, 
you know, in, and this can be debated, right? But I have a little bit more of an appetite for, you know, to kind of maintain some of the risk in the, in the succession plan. So I like the idea personally of keeping a little bit of the skin in the game and that can take a whole bunch of different forms and you can speak to that as well. But in order to, you know, take some, take money over time, leave a little bit, leave a little bit on the table, leave a little bit of exposure there so that we can get outsized returns on whatever type of, of, uh, of terms we're looking at in the succession plan. Well, yeah, and I, I, yeah, I think to, to kind of circle back and make it a little bit more clear, I think it's like, and you, you said it is, trying to minimize how much money you need upfront when that transaction happens will unbelievably open up options and doors for you. Because what a lot of people try to do is they have a lack of time, energy, or, or some sort of need to get that lump sum or they try and punch out right away, which is going to be the least amount of options and the most financially critical situation they can have. But, you know, let, let's say, you know, I think to kind of spend, you know, kind of open up a couple of conversations here is like, okay, so if we have saved up or we've got some sort of a, let's say it's $250,000 for, for easy numbers is if we know that we've got some real estate that's bringing us five grand a month, we've got some money that's saved up. And then we know that we only potentially need a couple million dollars up front. The, and let's say we've got a $4 million business. We know that we can have, we don't have to sell it outright. We can sell maybe to our managers. We could sell part to our employees through an ESOP. We can maybe do a private equity recap because we're essentially closing that gap, but then allowing for outsized returns because of whatever exit option. I think there's just a lot of people that get backed into a corner because they, they don't know these numbers. And so maybe kind of explain what you mean by outsized returns and how that lump sum impacts the cash flow and some of those decisions. Sure. And I think that just kind of as, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, it's, it's trying to bring clarity to what formula you're solving for. So we have all these different variables we've discussed. And the biggest risk that somebody's going to run here is that they are all of a sudden surprised by a sale, you know, a, an offer or, or they're forced into a situation to where they need to sell before they've had any opportunity to make an adjustments to these variables. And, you know, the outsized returns really goes back to the point I made earlier in that as long as we have exposure to these small to mid-sized businesses, generally speaking, we're going to be compensated for having that exposure. And, and there's a time aspect of that. So as long as we're exposed, we're going to get returns that are, and when I say outsized, I mean returns that are greater than what we can expect out of the market. So if we have a transition period to where... The owner wants to, you know, pull the parachute here. And let's just say we have five years of a runway instead of saying we're gonna we're gonna completely de-risk and we're going to walk away with a with a smaller amount of money because if if somebody's coming up with all cash up front, the multiple is gonna be lower. You're gonna have a smaller pool of assets to start from, and then we're going 100 percent out of that mm -hmm. out of that uh, environment where we could maybe get that 20 percent. Um, return from having that exposure, we're going right back down into a diversified portfolio, which is fantastic. I love diversified portfolios. I'm all for it. That's uh, something that I live and breathe. But the reality of, of that exposure is, is, is we're maybe looking at a rate of returns in the market in the 78%. So if we can double that by keeping in the business, by having some secured notes and possibly leaving a little bit on the table there, and we can do that for five or 10 years, that makes a significant impact into um, what we're going to be demanding out of the less risky assets later on in retirement. 
Well, yeah. And I think, you know, to give a couple examples of, you know, rolling that equity or the couple of different scenarios. So, you know, in this situation where you get the lump sum, like someone in this size business going back to our 4 million, I mean, they have to list, list it with a broker. It goes on a website, just like a real estate agent and these brokers broker it. And there's not all, you know, some people care about the tax planning. Some people care about some of the things, but I mean, it's just like, you know, your real estate agent, when you're selling a house, they don't really care how much you own the house and what your financial situation is and whether you're going to buy another house or rent. I mean, they don't really, their goal is to sell the company. And I think what allows the clarity is, okay, let's say I know I make enough money. I've got a couple of sources of income through real estate, through secure notes. You know, you could, you could sell or finance some of it. You could, roll some equity. And I think what that happens is that allows people or buyers that, that opens the bigger door for more buyers because, you know, the buyers have to find their own source of financing. They either have the cash or they are looking for creative structures that allow them to take it over. And I think that's where, you know, your management team comes into play or success, you know, your, your uh, family successors or any of my, it just really impacts it. I mean, you and I have worked with a customer where if they don't need the money, then they can have really creative ways to transition it to the management and the kits. I mean, I, I just, there's so much that hinges upon knowing your numbers and opening up this door. Then the, I, you and I have talked a lot about private equity recaps where, you know, you don't need the 30%. If you make enough money down, you, then that oversized return, what, I don't remember what it was. Like, I mean, they're averaging where sometimes they double their money on the second bite of the apple. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, and the reality is, is that, if you're not doing running this analysis well in advance, what options do you have if all of a sudden something happens and there is a triggering event that's forcing you into sale? Yeah, it's if the, the more flexible you can be on the terms, of course, you're going to bring more buyers to the table, which is going to drive the price up. You're going to potentially have more opportunities to maintain some exposure while you're doing whatever type of transition away from your activity in the business. But worst case scenario is, is that you're forced into a transaction and we see this where there a sale needs to happen. The sale needs to happen. The market defines what you get to walk away with. And the only adjustment that you get to make at that point is to your expenses. And that's again, worst, absolute worst case scenario. And that's what you and I kind of live and breathe every single day is trying to give people the flexibility so that the final adjustment doesn't need to necessarily be made in a dramatic fashion, which is to your lifestyle and your expense level. Well, and, and let's take an example where, you know, someone doesn't know these numbers and they get this random out of the blue offer that seems like a big, like, again, a, hey, we're going to buy you for $4 million. It seems great. But, you know, explain how when, like, when people go through the process, how all of a sudden, if they don't know these numbers, how it impacts negotiation and how, like, when they get to the altar, how things can be so dramatically different. Yeah. So, the, the the one thing that that we know that's a major risk is, is is the surprise offer. It's the surprise situation where the snowball starts, right? <laughs> and the expectations are set. The business owner all of a sudden he's he's eyeing up. He sees that big number. He hasn't done his homework. He sees that gross figure before terms and, and all kinds of things and taxes and everything have been applied, right? He sees that number. Uh, maybe, maybe employees find out about it. And it's a train that's very, very difficult to stop. And most of the time, the people who are driving that train are on the brokerage side of things. And it's just like a realtor selling your house where 
they really aren't incentivized to squeeze, you know, the extra margin out for you because it doesn't really move the needle on their compensation. They're, they're looking for volume. They want to get your transaction. They want to get your transaction close so that they can get paid. But it's this, it's the surprise that starts that that triggers the momentum that's very, 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 very difficult to slow down or to stop or to get out of. And then finding out that afterwards when you're at the altar that you're not going to have enough money. And, you know, our, uh, how many stories you hear were like, and again, I did it. And I know a lot of these owners do where you sign a non-compete. So your normal knowledge and your industry experience that made you all this money, you sign this non-compete, you walk away, you don't have enough money. And all the ways that you can make money, you can, you've signed, you've, you've literally eradicated yourself from that industry. <laughs> so you can't, you can't go back in and make the same amount of money, even though you don't have enough. And that whole train drug you through the, through the goal line. Yep. Yep. It's so true. And, you know, just going back to the, you know, to the many, many podcasts that you've done and you've had guests who've talked about all the things that you can do, obviously, and planning is, is, a, is always a theme. Right. And so there's all kinds of things that we can do and that we know that we should be doing as business owners to provide a lot of that flexibility. But I think that the one thing and to kind of the point of today's conversation is, is that we can even be doing these things that are value drivers for the business. We can be doing things intelligently, setting ourselves up to have the options and the opportunities for for multiple different types of options and terms. But you really have to boil it down to what is your number? And if you don't have that number, it is paralyzing. It is, the business can be all roses. Everything can look absolutely fantastic. There might not be a surprise offer. Every, you're doing everything right, but there is no goal. There's no end in mind because even when everything is being done right from a business standpoint and running it and straight, everything is streamlined, growth is doing great. You're evaluating how buyers are going to be looking at you to get the highest multiple. There still is this paralysis of, okay, when do I get off the train? Like, what's my number? How do I know, as great as everything is here, how do I know what the net is? And how do I know what's a reasonable risk-adjusted return to expect out of all these different resources that I've accumulated, whether it's the business or whether you've diversified? Social Security, obviously, again, a small component, but your, your after-tax savings, your, your retirement savings, everything factored in. And how and when to pull the trigger on these various income options all of these variables need to go into the computation. Well, and what's your number? But it's the what's your numbers? I would almost argue because what's your lifetime cash flow? How much money do you have, and how much money do you need, and how does that whole jigsaw fall together? Because it's going to impact everything. Because you might not need it all up front, and you just knowing when and how you need those liquidation events and that to to drive into that lifetime cash flow. Because I, you know, going back to your story about the brokers, I mean, like knowing this stuff before you hire a broker is extremely important because I mean, like there's lots of times where you could literally, if you have all your numbers and you have your whole structure set up, it's more advantageous for you to sell to your management team or to your family or to all these things, which you don't need a broker because why would you hire an Adina realty rep when you're going to do a, a reduced price contract for deed to your kid? It makes no sense. Right. right. And you you wouldn't do that if you needed the capital up front. No, I, I totally agree. And And the other thing is, is that, you know, depending on the terms that you're going to have with an internal sale, you know, you may be forced in that direction based on the fact that even if you were to get all the cash up front, the, you know, even a, even a nice multiple, right? A, a nice multiple paid up front. You have a fantastic buyer. They're going to come in. They're going to pay a premium. 
so often the value gap is so dramatic that even under the best case scenarios for the for the you know for the for the deal itself, there still is a better solution in the terms of of doing something internally because again you can maintain some uh, some exposure to that business. You can take it over more time to get those to get those returns that are going to fund you through different milestones that might be gaps to additional sources of cash flow in the future. Well, and I think even going back to when you mentioned terms that triggered a thought, we're like, okay, so great. You know, when you talk about risk in terms and having that note, going back into your old your old world and your lingo is, so there's, you know, you might be able to seller finance on a, on a loan or a high interest loan, seller's note to your management or to someone. But the reason that you're getting an outsized return is because there's risk in that person making sure that that thing continues to kick off cash as you step away. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard we're like, oh yeah, I sold to my key manager. I went down to Florida and they went and the whole thing went to shit. And a year and a half later when I was totally unplugged, I had to go take it back because technically that $4 million note is not paying anymore. It's like a junk bond. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. And, and that's, and that comes back to, you know, conversations that we have ongoing with, with our clients. And that is, is, what's our evaluation of the risk of, of being in this business? If, you know, ultimately positioning yourself so that you can be completely out is the best place to be, right? So if you, if, if all the stars align and you can completely de-risk and, and you, and, and we see that there is a heightened level of risk in whatever industry it might be, and we can, and we can talk about all kinds of industries that have been blown up and disrupted over the last 20 years, the idea is is to have that flexibility there, but you know it get, it's getting a grip on the risk. And there are there are industries that are doing fantastic, and we have people who are who are really looking forward to taking that second bite out of the apple and uh, you know doubling down, maybe taking a little bit off the table, but doubling down, pulling away from the business a little bit because they're maybe not the individual to drive growth because you know their their uh, their energy is is lowered or or whatever has whatever's happened to get them to want to step away. So, well, and let's, let's actually, I want to, I just, it made me think about a lot of the people that I am I'm really good friends with, and or even myself and, you know, these people that talk about, you know, owning companies that kick off cash and you've got them so well run that it's a, it's a, it's a punch card. You're just, you know, you're, you're clipping, you're clipping the coupons and you're, you're making money. What are the people, what, what would you say to the entrepreneurs that have such a well-run business that they are quote unquote, the chairman or chairwoman or whatever it might be that is just collecting the distributions. How do you reconcile all of this with those people and what would be your advice for them? Well, and you and I have talked about this a lot and, and there seems to be kind of this uh, consensus and, and maybe it's just from, from my experience that it seems like consensus, but you know, business owners, when they're, when they're ready, they seem to be ready to be done and they, they, they tend to want to get out where if there is an opportunity to structure in, a, you know, like, and it doesn't just have to be from the sale and, and, and maintaining exposure from terms, but if you can actually participate at that board level or from you know some type of a you know a step back level or, or whatever it might be that solves your problems, you know, on a, on a real healthy business, I mean that really is being able to maintain that interest. That's my my personal goal. I know you like the idea too of of having businesses where you don't necessarily need to be. Uh, 
you know, seriously involved in them, but through what you've built, you've developed the, the flexibility to, to kind of maintain some income stream from it on an ongoing basis. And that's difficult with a third party sale and a lot of times a little bit more feasible with a, with an internal transition. But, but those are the exact things that we're working through with everybody. Well, and I think, you know, you layer on estate planning with that, you know, and, I, and my, my thoughts for people that are in that mindset is you're still going to end up, you know, kicking over. I mean, like you're, they're still going to have to drag you out of the corner office regardless. So, you know, setting it up so that way it transfers through estate planning to your kids, or the management team or to the right. I mean, it's still an asset that's going to go away that you can't take with you. So, I mean, you're still going to have to, even though you can, you know, make the 350 maybe until you drop dead. You know, there's still other ways to mitigate that, so that way you don't leave everybody else in like just an absolute shitstorm. Right, and it's and it's the planning, and it's and it's having a it's having a design in place to design whatever it's going to take to finance the lifestyle you're looking for. And if there's some is if there's an extended transition that we can take advantage of there, uh, it doesn't have to be forever or till death, but uh, that can get us through some of those years where the expenses are going to be higher for some reason. Maybe we have um, a house that's not paid for. We've got a big mortgage, a $5,000 a month mortgage. That's a significant part of our expenses. Maybe, maybe there's a transition that gets us through one of these milestones that, that kicks off and uh, turns off uh, a serious expense. So everything is solving for designing for the clarity and that in the numbers that it's going to take to to really not have the client take a serious hit to their lifestyle. So, and you might have just even kind of wrapped it up there, but you know, if, with all the different things that we've talked about, what what's one thing that you want to like highlight? Make sure that they are the listeners are left with, or if there's something that we haven't covered, you know, how would you how would you wrap it all up, and what would you leave them with? I well, I would definitely say that this the integration that we do with the, the individual's interest, the, the, the owners themselves, right? That planning at the owner, the personal level for the owner, that's separated from the business but tied to it, and really taking the time to dial in on what the owner's personal financials look like and what's the reality of where they're at, how old they are, the likelihood of future income, getting all these things balanced out so that along with these fantastic decisions they're making for business growth and, and operations in their business, they have this side conversation that's happening that's, that, that really is more integrated than a lot of people give it weight to. So I, I would just encourage people to drill down, throw everything into the hat, find out what we need to be working on on the personal financial level alongside the business to give you the flexibility to just hyper-optimize whatever... Uh, exit options that we're working on. Well, right. And I think, you know, to, to wrap a bow on that too, is, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I, I think about what, what my dad did and how we were, all the risks that we took as we were juggling payroll and all the loans and all that stuff is like, you do all that because you want to be rewarded for it and you want the control and you're dealing with the risk in order to have the control. And what you realize when you get to the altar is you have zero control over this if you don't know your numbers. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a shame. Yeah. And it's, and it's difficult because you, you know, the owner is in a sprint, right? They're, they're putting out fires, they're trying to grow, they're doing all these things. And a lot of times the last thing, and we see it in retirement accounts, you know, the retirement accounts are, are, are typically not as well funded as somebody who is, you know, working for a, a publicly traded company and they know their 401k is the only thing. So 
they're just trying to drive the value of their baby because they look at that as money being socked away, but there's really no end in mind. And that's really what I would encourage everybody to focus on. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, I think just check out the website, the the GEXP website and, and, and check the team out and get in touch with any one of us. Thanks so much. It was a long time coming. All right. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I don't know if you walked away with that uh, with a little bit more relief and a less anxiety because you have a better understanding of what's important, what you should start measuring. Or if you had an oh shit moment that said, oh my gosh, I have a lot of work to do. But I think either way, the biggest takeaway that I have is understanding your numbers is one of the most important things that you can do because in order for you to get what you want out of the exit and out of your business transition, the best thing to know is your numbers because then you will understand all of the options that you might have. My dad and I would have maybe done a lot of different things if we would have known we could have done certain things with the building, with the different structures, I could have potentially bought it. Knowing what's important, what you want, and then layering your numbers and your lifetime cash flow need and how when your business is valued and when and how you'll get that money, then you can make all of the decisions that you want. You will actually have control over the future of your business and your transition or your exit. There's not much else that I need to say in that. If you have any more questions, go on our website, GEXP Collaborative. There's tons of white papers on that. We have more ultimate guides that are going out that will explain this value gap and how to run the numbers. Go on to iTunes, give me a rating, share this episode with your friends. Otherwise, I will see you next week.